I'll be back in a week. Thank you, Lucrecia Burton, and thanks for listening. And this is KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky discussing Bay Area Theater. My guest is Tony Tacconi, the Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep in Berkeley. Berkeley Rep's new season begins with an audience with Meow Meow. Meow Meow. That opens on Friday, September 12th, and runs through October 19th. We're going to talk about that play. We're going to talk about the upcoming season. I'm going to ask Tony Tacconi questions about the past season, including IHO, the Tony Kushner show, and a little bit about one of the projects that Berkeley Rep works on, which is called The Ground Floor. Let's start, Tony Tacconi, with an audience with Meow Meow. Uh, <laughs> who is this person? It's a postmodern performer... What is this? Uh, Meow Meow is a combination of Liza Minnelli and Lucille Ball. If you can put those two people together, you get a real sense of, of the sort of spectrum of her talent. She's a great comedian, a tremendous singer. She's a internationally uh, renowned cabaret singer. But she's done a lot of theater. She's from Australia. She's created this persona of Meow Meow, which is a very exotic diva. Certainly just a character that she's managed to sort of combine cabaret traditional singing with a kind of comic assault that is both really endearing and a little dangerous. I mean, she, she goes into the audience a lot. She works with the audience a lot. She gets the audience to do things that they would never imagine that they would do. I think she's an extraordinarily talented woman. I mean, and by the way, in her other life, she also speaks four languages and is a lawyer and those kinds of things, too. So she's uh, an amazing person. Is this an actual play, then? Emma Rice, who directed The Wild Bride and Tristan Isolf, and our wonderful colleague from, from Nehi in England, has worked with me now on some plays. She told me about this creature <laughs> called me out and said you got to see her and so i flew up to portland oregon uh where she was performing in a concert with the Oakland symphony orchestra and what was so great about that was that the audience you know was made up of people who were subscribers to the you know Oregon symphony not meow meow fans she slayed them she slayed every single person in that audience which was about a 2000 seat house and people who hadn't heard of her were won over by her so what we're doing is we're taking the foundation of the work you know that she's created over the last six or seven years and we're making it into a dramatic evening emma had a seminal role in doing that dramaturg robert egan has a, had a seminal role in doing that so we're structuring an event where you see her persona in a dramatic situation change over the course of the evening we're basically taking her her material and making a play out of it you found out about her because Emma Rice just spoke with you and mentioned this this incredible woman, and you had not heard of her? I had heard about her actually once from David Binder, who's a producer in New York, who just did Hedwig and the Angry Inch. About three or four years ago, he said, have you heard of Meow Meow? And I, like everybody else, I'm like, what? What is that? He said, she's this amazing performer, and you got to get to know her. 
I looked up her website and I checked her out and I saw the pictures and I heard the voice, but that was the, my only contact. And then David actually tried to get her to do a show in, in New York. One thing led to another. Schedules didn't work out. And long story short, she's come back into the fold under the aegis of this play. This is a little bit different from what you've been doing. It seems like you've been stretching the bounds of theater in the past couple of years. You know, in that sense, it's very much the same about what we've been doing. I've been accused of nudging plays anymore, which is, I take exception to that, of course, but I think we are involved in a fairly serious experiment of expanding the definition of what a play is. With the hybridization of, of the art form, there's so many different artists of different persuasions and, and expertise that are you know, now interested in doing theater. We started this process, I think, really with Stu in a conscious way with Passing Strange, you know, where we took a performer who didn't have any theater experience. We just saw his band and how he told stories on stage and went, that guy could write a musical. So ever since then, we've, we've made a conscious attempt. And the ground floor, which you mentioned uh, in your opening remarks, Ground Floor is our incubation for new work. It's our it's it's the program by which we bring new new talent, writers that we both know and don't know, into a a program. The highlight of which is a one month residency in June. Usually, this year we had 19 different projects come into that with about 80 artists. Fantastic program. It is a absolutely fantastic, wonderful project, and it's changed the culture of Berkeley rap. It's restored our sense, I think, of mission in a, in a way where where we are here as a you know, major regional nonprofit organization to support the art form, to fund, to use every one of our resources to find ways to to create safe homes for artists. And so the ground floor does that. Meow will will have come through that, as will numbers of other of our, of our projects. Tony Tacconi, this brings up a question I've noticed in talking to many of the artistic directors around here. There's more of an emphasis at each place, each company, on new work, on creating world premieres that I don't recall in the past. It may have to do with the changing art form, but I'm wondering if it also has to do with the fact that maybe there aren't that many great plays that you're hearing about. I don't think so. I don't think that's it. You know, about 13, 14 years ago, I started to feel that the revolutionary agenda that was at the heart of the founding of the, of the regional theater movement, which was in the late 50s, early 60s, was based upon a menu, if you will, that was slightly dated. In other words, it used to be, if you did a six-play season, five of the plays were from the classical canon, which meant European classics, and a play from New York, and a hit from New York. That's how you set it up. That, that was your formula. You know, I think after a couple of generations of people being excited and exposed to that, it started to feel that the list of classical plays that people were talking about was about 50 to 75 plays that were just familiar titles that had, you know, aspired to the, to the category greatness, right? I'm being reductive here, but not by much. And I thought, well, you know, I've seen Midsummer Night's Dream now 12 times. And it's a great, great play. But my interest in it has lessened over the years. I'm not as excited to see it as I once was because I've seen great productions of it and I want to see something else. So I started to feel that we were uniquely positioned at Berkeley to alter the menu because I felt like with uh, where we were 
both geographically and culturally. Uh, the Bay Area is well known for having a interested, engaged audience, people who are not afraid to think in metaphor, um, not afraid to take risks on, in uh, lots of parts of their lives. And I felt like we were uniquely positioned if we could introduce material that was of high quality and produce it at a level that was very well respected, that we had an opportunity to sort of change the menu a little bit. And so I set out to do that. We set out as an organization to, to consciously do that. And, and not that we don't like classical plays. We're doing Tartuffe next year in a brilliant production of that play. Brilliant. And I think any theater company worth its salt has got to measure itself against the greatest plays of all time. They're the greatest for a reason. And even though each generation redefines what constitutes greatness, I think you, you can say pretty, pretty confidently that King Lear is a pretty good play. <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyway, um, I do think we have changed our diet, so to speak. I think we've become more interested in New York. I think a lot of companies have picked up on that as well. I think people are workshopping plays a lot more. And I do think this also happens to be a golden age for playwriting. I would disagree with anybody who thinks that we can't find really good plays. I think we find a lot of great plays. And we've managed to introduce a few of them to our audience. And I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of that. Is it also the case that, you know, something I've noticed at a lot of these theater companies, a little less at Berkeley Rep, that the crowd seems to be older and maybe younger people want something different too so if you're going to bring younger people into the mix you have to expand well i'm happy to say that our under 30 program has done fantastically well i think a good 25 percent of our single ticket buyers are now under 30 years old which is great and so i i do think that we've made a concerted effort to try to embrace younger people and yeah i think you're absolutely right younger people speak a different vernacular their understanding and assumptions about the world are are not the same as their parents or grandparents some of them are but some of them aren't and i think that younger writers share a sensibility i mean we have interesting audiences here uh there's a, a pretty good mix and there are many many plays that we do where you can literally feel the audience arguing with itself with each other most apparently in comedies right because comedies are, are much more controversial in my mind that, than dramas are because you know if you're sitting next to a person who's laughing raucously at things you don't find funny at all you think well either this person is out of it or i'm out of it or what's what's going on and i don't i don't think that that's just about taste i think it's about values in some ways i mean we, we did the pillow man for example when you do plays like that that are darkly comic then what people are laughing what people find funny can be offensive to you know people who don't share those values find it to be threatening and and, and insulting and so i love <laughs> i love producing work that actually creates an argument in, you know like in the audience somewhat well, i don't want to get too far afield <laughs> on this but when i saw iho my friend and I were laughing hysterically. We looked across, and there was one couple with their hands folded, not saying a word. And after Act One, they didn't come back. Yeah, right. The great thing for me about IHO, the Intelligent Homosexuals Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with a Key to the Scriptures. That's the full title of the play. Tony wisely gave it the acronym IHO. Actually, his husband did, but we all are able to call it that. So Kushner, you know, Kushner's play is you know, over three and a half hours long. 
And I think everybody was a little daunted by that fact in terms of just the staff and the cast. The cast went out there. And I have to tell you, the overwhelming feeling of that audience was they were there for the whole thing. They really enjoyed the whole thing. They followed it very intensely. They were engaged with it. They found the ambition of the play, at the very least, enormously exciting. Kushner's a singular voice, you know, and he obviously has a following here. Yeah, but there were people who went like, oh, my God, I'm I'm out. I'm out of this. Tony Tacconi, let's talk about a few of the other plays that are coming up. After that is a, another strange hybrid. seems to be a hybrid. It's called Party People by a group called Universes, a New York-based theater collective. Uh, the show also played in Ashland, and it's about a... A meeting between the Panthers and the Young Lords? Well, premise of the play, the dramatic situation is that it, it is a bit of a reunion between people who were in the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords at an installation, uh, a photographic installation that's been created by these two younger guys. That is the landscape for a, a very combustible and exciting dialogue. Universes is made up of three folks. They are great, boisterous, smart, talented theater artists who came out of the spoken word movement in New York and then started creating theater pieces. They sing beautifully. They move great. So their pieces are filled with a kind of performance energy that's very viscerally exciting. It was done in Ashland in a very different incarnation, but it was very successful in Ashland. A lot of people, some of your audience members may have seen it up there. You know, my feeling is that if there's any theater in the United States that's predisposed to want to do a play about the Black Panther Party, it's Berkeley Rep. It happened here. Many, many of the people who Universe has interviewed over the past two years, and they interviewed many people, you know, are from here. I imagine an opening night will be filled with characters who you're going to see on stage in some form or another. Now, no one is called by name. It's a fictitious documentary, if you will. But certainly all the stories are inspired and told by real folks. And the play deals with the legacy of the past, with the meaning of the past, people's attempt to try to derive significance and a sense of, of historical authenticity and truth. It's a complicated story. I'm real, we've done a lot of work, though, to, to make the storylines more dynamic and to make them more character-based. For those people who did see the National, while they will recognize the energy of the piece, they won't recognize the storylines that much. You're listening to an interview with Tony Tacconi, the artistic director of Berkeley Rep. An audience with Meow Meow plays through October 19th. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. Next show on the schedule there is Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivins with Kathleen Turner. And that came from Broadway. I'd like to interview her because I knew Molly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. What a, what a spitfire she was. She's the best thing. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, Molly Ivins is a, a character for the agent. But, you know, obviously she made this, a mini career by going after George W. Bush for all those years. Although I think her most famous quote is the Pat Buchanan. After the Pat Buchanan gave his speech to the Republican Party, she's famously quoted that, I'm sure it sounded better in the original German. She kind of looked at the whole thing as a kind of pageant, you know, a pageant on the greatest stage in the world. And so she also felt very lucky to have this particular role of like court scribe slash court jester, you know. I think Kathleen Turner is a really formidable 
passionate presence on stage. She clearly loved Molly Ivins. I mean, she has a commitment to the material. She sees herself, I think, in, in some ways as a bit of an activist. By doing this play, I think she's sort of, if you will, spreading the word a little bit. Just in terms of the the Syrian intelligence that's behind the you know the language and the and barbs. I mean, she's her intention is is to sort of celebrate the responsibility she felt as a civilian, you know, commenting on society's ills. I think Kathleen marries her own persona and her own intentions with that. X's and O's, a gridiron love story, is a show that came out of the ground floor. KJ Sanchez, who is creating the project with Jenny Mersenne. Jenny's dad used to play for the Packers. And Jenny and KJ were friends, and they, they happened to be meeting up at a party, and Jenny mentioned something about football. KJ happened to be a huge football fan. KJ runs her own company, which does basically docudramas of sorts. They're fictional docudramas. And so she had just completed this piece about vets returning from Afghanistan, which was very successful. I loved it. I read it and I thought it was terrific. They knew that I was a sports fan. So once they conjured up this idea of maybe doing a play about this, they called me up and said, hey, we have this idea about doing a piece, you know, inspired, well, inspired, but, you know, catalyzed by this notion of what's going on with football and the head trauma issues and the concussion issues that are surrounding the NFL, which is a nine billion dollar a year enterprise and um trying to make a more personal and interesting piece of theater that both kind of understood what it is about this particular moment of history that's creating this dynamic this weird dynamic of you know modern gladiators if you will in the service of this fantastical spectacle which is in a capitalist economy you know with all of its contradictions i said yes so we commissioned the project anything that we commissioned goes through the ground floor so yeah it it did go through the ground floor this summer we had a great workshop two weeks worked on the first week was just text the second week we, you know we had actors in there running around it follows former players grappling in different ways with head issues it follows families the offspring of three players who killed themselves in the killing of themselves started to understand the nature of of head injuries it also though one of the seminal things about it is that kj is exploring is and then the other spine of his fans fans who love the game and she loves football kj does and so her attempt is to try to see both the beauty and the joy and the goodness if you will of sport and of this particular sport and the excesses of what that love can kind of lead to Part two, I recall correctly, did that come here as Theater de June Loon? No, but you're right in the sense that some of the principal members of June Loon are attached to Tartuffe. Dominique Saran, the director, Steve Epp, who's been here many times, both with June Loon shows and with other folks. What Dominique is so good at with his work on Moliere is exploring the deep melancholy and sometimes dark underbelly of the comedy and they live side by side the, so the plays are both hilarious and scary <laughs> it's all part of a palette that's very very haunting and riveting and irresistible so really happy to bring that back 
And you're in constant touch with them, so you just find out what's going on, and they. Yeah, go. I mean, I, I, we're in constant touch. I, I think I've been in constant touch with about 300 artists. I don't talk to them every every week, right. but I, I think we keep tabs on people who we feel are deeply, deeply talented and and who we want to have come back, and then also try to keep our ear to the ground for everybody new who's got something to offer. Tony Tacconi, the next is Terrell Albert McCraney's latest play, Head of Passes, and the brother-sister plays, and a couple other plays of his, I think, have played in the Bay Area. Well, the brother's size was here. Uh, there was a trilogy that was done. ACT, uh, Marin, and Magic all did a kind of celebration of his work in this trilogy, and they each took one play, and, which was exciting. I'm sorry we couldn't be part of that. Terrell is somebody who we've commissioned number of years ago and he accepted the commission then he got overloaded he just said you know what i have so many of these things and i i have writer's block now and so we basically said you know whenever you're ready whenever you're ready the play that we're doing with him head of passes tina lando is the director i'm very excited to have her at berkeley rep she's never worked here she's a steppenwolf company member she directed this play in his premiere form at steppenwolf now it's it's hard to get your plays done a second time one of the problems of a culture that's so focused on premieres is it tends to discard after they've opened when in fact they have another round to go my friend oscar eustace who runs the public who i used to work with at the eureka called me and seen it said look we should do this play again it's a beautiful play it's got another round to go there's some problems terrell knows what they are he wants to work on them again i read the play obviously its initial inspiration uh, was the book of job i mean terrell is religious in some ways. He has, he has faith. I, I, I wouldn't want to say it's a formally dogmatized, but he definitely has faith. And he was trying to write a play about a woman who loses everything in a very short amount of time. And the very foundation of her sense of self is really shaken. And so it becomes a confrontation with much, much bigger issues about belief and about sanctity. And is it possible to have reverence for a world with so much suffering he knew his problems were in the second act and we agreed and so we're going to have a workshop of that play in the ground floor and then we're going to do that in the spring and the final play is something that was on broadway called one man two governors james corden won a tony for it he did and he would, uh, gave a spectacular performance and that's always a little daunting when you have you know that as an image for people to compare to but we have secured the services of dan donahue who is an amazing actor his comic chops are off the chart it's just a scathingly funny show. It's in the spirit of a comedy show reset in Britain in a bit more of a modern context. It's the classic thing where you have a guy who's stuck between two different employers trying to satisfy both agendas which are antithetical to each other and he's running back and forth and, and pretending he's this with that person and that with the other person and comic melee ensues and it's just it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Tony Tacconi, what was it like hanging out with Patrick Stewart, Billy Crudup, Schuler Hensley, and Ian McKellen? In a word, inspiring. You know, you never know when you meet famous people if they're if they're going to sort of live up to your own um, idealized version of who they are or who you or romanticized notions of who they might be. But I'm telling you, these guys, they were the real deal. I'll tell you one little story. They had a preview week which was you know they had on a wednesday night they had a 
uh, a double day on Thursday. That, that means there's a matinee and an evening show. When you see two guys in their 70s after the Wednesday night show demanding to get notes that night before they go home to go to bed and they have a double day the next day, man, that is commitment. These guys came in every day. They challenged themselves to unearth the deepest truths they could get to about the play. The director, Sean Mathias, did a tremendous job. He knew them really well, which I think was a big advantage. And he'd basically come in most days and say, stop acting. No acting. And what he meant by that was he trusted everybody in that room to have such incredible craft. He wasn't worried if they could pull something off. He wasn't worried if they could, you know, sing the melody that was already... But he wanted, he wanted them to discover personally what their connection was to the material and how they related as a group of people to the stories that were being told. They're theater rats, man. I mean, they, they came in and they, they just worked really hard. And so it was inspiring. I think it raised the bar for everybody at Berkeley Rap watching them work. Ian McKellen, for me, was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen on stage. And, and so nuanced. So, so He was doing... Physical things that required dexterity and, and stamina. The guy's not a young guy, but he was going for it. And then the way he was able to sort of fold it into the center of both the text and the intention of what he was doing, amazing. Was there any thought of doing it in rep like they did in New York with Godot? No. No. In fact, No Man's Land benefited from the fact that none of them had ever worked on it before. Patrick and Ian had just done Wedding of Godot for two years in England. I was much more interested, frankly, in something that nobody had ever worked on before because I felt like everyone was starting fresh. They were all kind of coming from the same place of nervous excitement, clean slate, of unknowing, right. which I thought was really, really healthy. And Mona Golubek's show went to New York. Mona's show touched people in a way that was very rare. I think the combination uh, of the content, obviously, this, the story is very moving. Her singular sense of transparency and openness and simplicity and respect for the material, the fact that, you know, she's telling her mother's story, she ended that play saying, you know, this is for mothers everywhere. I mean, it was really impossible not to be really touched by that show. Hershey Felder, two shows this season on Bernstein and Chopin, you brought him back because he'd done Gershwin. Hershey, you know, directed Mona's show. In fact, Mona saw Hershey doing his Bernstein show that enabled her to go up to him after she saw it and said, you have to direct my play. And he was like, well, my God, I don't know. I'm, all, I'm overloaded. I got my own stuff. But he was able to do that. And so he came and we thought well, it, was, it would be a good idea if he let off and then he could sort of talk to the audience, which he does amazingly well about Mona's show, that position Mona's show to do well. Then he came here. Hershey's got a very unique talent. I mean, he's, he's a great storyteller. He's a terrific piano player. And he has enormous respect for both the craft and for trying to marry the thrill of being at a musical concert, you know, with the intimacy of telling the audience stories that are both funny and moving. So he's got a very unique style, and I think he's done extremely well with our audience. Do you plan to bring him back for the Beethoven show or something? Uh, we haven't talked about that yet. We have so many shows that are going on right now. I mean, it's in, and plus our Thrust Theater is going to be going to be under renovation for a little while. Next summer, 
beginning with the summer of 15 through, I think, at least January of, the, of 16, the Thrust Theater will be undergoing a major renovation. Not in terms of the architecture of the space, but new seats, new air conditioning, new... We're, we're trying to upgrade the space. It hasn't, there hasn't been any serious work done on the Thrust for... You know, it opened in 1981. That's a long time now. So we need to make sure that that space is a first-rate theater facility. Tony Tacconi, one final question. Game on. San Jose rep did it. Anything going to happen with it? I hope so. I hope so. A lot of people are interested. It's out of my hands, obviously. But I'm. But we're, we're talking about three or four you know, folks who want to do it. You've been listening to an interview with Tony Tacconi, the artistic director of Berkeley Rep in Berkeley. An audience with Meow Meow plays through... October 19th. For more information, you can go to the website, berkeleyrep.org. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. Music Convention is coming to town from Tuesday, September 16th through Sunday, September 21st. Concerts and square dances with award-winning pickers and singers, a string band contest with 20 bands, movie night workshops, and kids' activities at Berkeley locations, including Freight and Salvage, Ashkenaz, the Saturday Farmer's Market, Pacific Film Archive, UC Berkeley, and the Berkeley Public Library. Fun for the whole family. Visit berkeleyoldtimemusic.org for all the details. All proceeds benefit the Berkeley Old Time Music Convention. Co-sponsored by KPFA, the Ecology Center, Freight and Salvage, and the California Bluegrass Association, all nonprofits. The Berkeley Old Time Music Convention, September 16th through 21st. And you're listening to 94.